Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael and we are here today to have a faculty meeting. This is going to be faculty meeting 147 Wizards. This is once again a sort of looking back at some of the oldest episodes of the RPG Academy and this is actually revisiting Dungeon Talk Episode 7. Uh, before we get too far into things, though, let's take a moment to say hi and who we are. I, of course, am Michael, and joining me today, as always, is Tom. Tom, say hello to everyone. Uh, hey, folks. Yeah, it's me. It's Tom. Here to talk about some games. And, and stuff. And stuff. Stuff. Okay. Yeah, this is definitely a stuff episode. Wow. Speaking of stuff, <laughs> that, man, uh, you know what? Everybody comes from humble roots, but this episode of Dungeon Talk was rough the original episode title was called figments of conversation and you guys didn't talk about anything you planned to talk about it was the most random thing michael you keep on getting frustrated because you keep it's not like it's not evan sidebar you keep sidebarring yourself like and you mm. actually say that you're like this episode we're just going to call it dungeon talk episode sidebar you say that at one point <laughs> okay anyway yeah no we're going to talk about some stuff Excellent. All right. And if people want to find you on the internet and hang out with you, chat with you, talk to you about comics and stuff, where can they find you? Easiest place is at Bezcar Tom on Twitter. That's Mandalorian Metal Tom on Twitter. And then as always, I'm going to give a shout out to our Discord. If you're interested in interacting with us on a daily basis, uh, you can go ahead and join the Discord. So hit us up there. Yep. Again, the, the link isn't posted anywhere. You have to ask us, but we will give it to pretty much anyone. But we keep it uh, closed because of spam bots and silly stuff that happened when we first started. Yep. All right. So before we get into the show, we want to talk a little quickly about why we are here. So the goal of these faculty meetings is that Tom and I are about to have a conversation about some role play game stuff. And we hope that at some point somewhere in this conversation, something, some little nugget of wisdom will come out that you will be able to take and apply at your table to make your games more fun. But we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that feels pretty universal. And Tom, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you're playing, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, as long as you and your players at your table are having a good time, you're doing it right. So with that out of the way, let's hit the RPG news. What you got for me, Tom? Okay. All right. So before we talk about a catacon, uh, let's talk about some other stuff real quick. Uh, I think one of the, an interesting thing is Chaosium, you know, the makers of uh, Call of Cthulhu uh, and Gorl. I think they make Gorlantha. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. Uh, they reacquired Cubicle 7's Cube, um, Cthulhu license. So Chaosium's now going to be making Cthulhu Britannica and World War Cthulhu. So the reason that I want to bring this up, I think it's interesting, is because uh, uh, now I'm going to sound like some sort of biased pundit, some like crazy conspiracy theory person. All right, but Cubicle 7... For those who remember about two years ago, they gave up the one ring license and forbidden um, freely gobbled that up. Now they're losing their Cthulhu stuff, which they have previously licensed from Chaosium. And Chaosium just went ahead and said, OK, we're going to take these back and do them ourselves. So mm -hmm. it's almost like it's Cubicle 7. They just keep on. I think all they have left now is like Warhammer. So um, and who knows? Fantasy Flight may steal that back at any moment so i guess it's we keep we've been talking about licensed games and ips and stuff so i guess that is one of the downfall falls of doing an ip game or just getting a license instead of doing original content because 
I guess at any moment you may lose that license. So, right. so it's, it's, it's a little bit tricky thing, but uh, yeah, I, so we're going to be seeing a bunch more. If you're into Call of Cthulhu, a bunch of more stuff coming around the corner. And speaking of IP, I have yet to hear back from Warner Brothers about my uh, proposition for us to take on the Wacky Races IP for an RPG. So that's just to be determined, Maybe. I guess. That means they're thinking real hard about it. Right. Yep. Right. So many meetings. Bureaucracy. All right. <laughs> so an interesting thing is the uh, we continue to see articles, Kickstarter delays and updates and whatnot about the increased cost of freight that is affecting publishers all right yeah the reason that i wanted to bring it up right now is because steve jackson uh we all know the uh what they, they obviously we know them for like i mean munchkin but then they're like they make like what is it do they make is it gerps is that the one that i think they make gerps okay yeah. that's the big one but anyway steve jackson is a really detailed like industry blog um that they you can find on their very old very 90s website um that they just don't care about updating but they post a ton of content there and so one of their posts was making the rounds recently and it was basically about they were saying hey we're a good-sized publisher we've been around for a while we are terrified of what's going on right now so they were saying that basically the cost to ship one container across the atlantic ocean has tripled in price okay Mm -hmm. and this is for these they were saying that they were about to ship five containers so we're talking about 10 like thousands of games that's a lot of containers so even with their bulk pricing uh they're still it's really expensive i know what a lot of other smaller rpg publishers do especially folks over in the eu what they do is they actually bundle uh their games with other games of people who are being shipped over to the states or australia or somewhere else and so they basically all go in together through a broker in one container all right so, but we're talking about Steve Jackson who has like five containers and they're like three times. So they're basically saying, hey, you need to give us publishers a little bit of grace here. And also they're telling consumers, be prepared for some, should be some drastic price increases coming in 2022. Right. All right. Because we all know, um, well, there's been a, a lot of talk about what the margins actually are for tabletop RPGs, and people are now finding out that they may not be as small as everybody thought, but they're definitely going to be shrinking. Yeah, I think, and, and I don't know a whole lot about it, but I have looked into a few things because of Action 12 Cinema, and, you know, I think there is this weird sort of, like, understanding and expectation of what makes a good RPG book, and for the most part, it's hardback and it's full color. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the things that make those books really expensive. You know, Tracy ran that uh, Kickstarter, you know, You Are the Dungeon recently. And it was like a zine. It was like eight pages that I think he printed themselves or they printed themselves, you know, so you can do things really inexpensively, but it has to be a very niche sort of product. And like the mainstream things that you're going to see in the Barnes and Nobles of the world and not just game stores you know, I think those books are going to have to go to 70, 80 bucks if they're going to try to keep the margins the way they are now, which whether they should be or not, I don't know, is someone else to say. But yeah, there's I'm I'm kind of terrified. It's almost guaranteed that Action 12 Cinema, I know we're not really supposed to be covering that now, but it's going to be a primarily digital product yeah. with maybe like print on demand through drive through with coupons. Yeah, because I can't afford to do it. 
do a Kickstarter and then find out my shipping costs have tripled. Yeah, I don't think the big thing here is, hey, I mean, uh, we're, we are lucky to be in the States. So I'm sure like we don't have to deal with all the the shipping costs going overseas, especially if you make it uh, a states only product. Uh, I would recommend that folks go follow F Sones. That's F S O H N S. They are the creator of Nibiru and they do a lot of, I follow them on Twitter because they do a lot of industry stuff. And Federico is uh, unashamed as far as like posting his receipts for his games. So if you really want to know, it's kind of like, it's so are so secretive. How much does it actually cost to make a game? Federico is posting his invoices. So you can see like, hey, here is the printer I used. This is how much it cost me to print each of my hardcover full uh, color books. It's really interesting stuff to see. So definitely go uh, go follow Federico Sons on Twitter. He's got a lot of, he's talking a lot about this right now. So, And we did an interview with him for Nimbaru. Yes a while back as well i'll throw that in the show notes as well if people miss that want to circle back to it sure okay uh yeah the other thing this is not really uh any sort of news this is just me being excited uh free league posted their uh new update for forbidden lands and we're getting a solo mode if they can hit that stretch goal it's something i've been craving for a long time so nice i just want to let you all know i'm excited about it okay uh status of a catacomb Still proceeding. I have signed the initial contract that there will be a contract with the DCC. Um, after we worked out a lot of the issues, they're giving me substantial discounts this year to basically put our cost this year in line with what it was in 2019. Though I don't know that I'm going to get those discounts next year. So the cost of a Catacon 2022 could be substantially more than 2021. Uh, with the Delta variant continuing to surge, I'm growing ever more afraid that attendance is not going to be great. Uh, but right now, we're going to push through. We're going to keep going. I, I'm just kind of at this point expecting that I'm going to lose money. I'm just trying to minimize how much that is. But uh, people are starting to submit games. The demo people have uh, started putting their stuff on there. We're going to have games. We're going to have events. Uh, I just hope enough people feel comfortable coming out and, and playing with us. But we, uh, yeah, so... Proceeding with caution. Okay. And folks, if you have a badge and you're running games, don't forget, go ahead and submit those. I'm going to be running Please. some a Metroid Prime Dread. And I was thinking today about what else I want to do. And I think I'm going to be running some board games. I think I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to run some Power Rangers, Heroes of, Heroes of the Grid. I'm going to run some Elder Tour. You know, some real big, nice. some big chunky games that people don't get to play all the time. So we'll see. All right. That's it. A Catacon. All right. Fantastic. All right, so let's take a moment, jump over and talk to Grant, and he has our DMs Guild Spotlight for this week. Hey all, Grant here with another DMs Guild Spotlight. I want to tell you about another excellent product by one of my favorite creators, Walrock Homebrew. This product is Fortresses, Temples, and Strongholds, rules for building and customizing player-owned structures. For $11.99, and I purchased this, this supplement gives players a framework for building a home base, a stronghold, if you will, uh, which is customizable a lot more so than what is provided in the DMG. The real star of the book is ways to customize the stronghold from setting up lodgings for road-weary travelers to setting up an armory for town defense to smithies for supplies and income all the way to interplanar lecture halls and secret temples. 
I'll provide unique bonuses to characters or the stronghold itself or generate a passive income for the town, stronghold, or the players themselves. Gives characters something to spend gold on besides magic or mundane items. And gives them a home base so that they are connected to the world. Reinforces campaign buy-in and then it gives the DM something personal to the characters to imperil. Uh, which always leads to a lot of exciting moments. Also provided in this supplement are hirelings and merchants, which is, includes rules and prices for staffing your new stronghold or hiring sidekicks. Uh, and there are a list of what you can, what players can expect to spend on hirelings and all of the stronghold buildings and customizations also require hirelings to staff them up. This also uh, includes rules for generating and rolling merchants. Some of the customizations bring merchants into the stronghold that players can interact with, which means it fits hand in glove with the Walrock Homebrew's other supplement, Traders and Merchants. Also available on the DMs Guild and recommended by me in an earlier episode. Uh, you also have edicts, which are rules for hosting festivals, magic training seminars, and even setting up toll roads to bring in more passive income. Six new spells, finally, for having cottages grow chicken legs like Baba, Yaga, Baba Yaga's hut all the way to excavating land for making the perfect spot for your new stronghold. Now, my players love playing with this supplement. They have become quite the community builders, and they are enjoying the heck out of it. And I, as a DM, love how easily it works and how much it ties the characters to my campaign world. Uh, one note that I do want to say, it does require a bit of extra bookkeeping, but I've easily solved this by a quick and dirty shared spreadsheet on Google Drive. Now, links to fortresses, temples, and strongholds by Walrock Homebrew will be in the show notes. This has been Grant for the RPG Academy with DM's Guild Spotlight. If you have products on the guild that you think we should know about, message or tweet me at the underscore foxblade on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, uh, Grant. I appreciate it. Uh, just a reminder, anyone, if you have products on the DMs Guild that you think Grant should take a look at and potentially spotlight, uh, you can get all of him at the underscore Foxblade. Uh, and as a reminder for this and for what's coming up next, we have kind of a rule here at the Academy. We don't talk about things that we don't like. Uh, mostly we only talk about things we love. So if you do send something to Grant and it's just not his cup of tea, He's just never going to talk about it. So that doesn't, you know, so just understand that if you send any, in the same thing for us, if you send us a game to review and we don't like it, we're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to say we got it and we didn't like it. We're just never going to talk about it at all. With that in mind, I do have a mini review today for the game Dimension by Cosmos Games. Um, are you familiar with this game at all? I am, yeah. Tom, have you? Yep. Okay. So it's basically sort of like a pyramid structure building dexterity pattern game mm -hmm. kind of a it's kind of a weird game i would almost categorize it more of an activity yep. than a game in some ways it plays one to four players very simple uh you get these little player boards that hold 15 different colored balls so there's like five different color balls each has just three of each one 
And the goal is to try to stack them into a pyramid shape. There's The boards have these little like indentions, so you can put seven on the bottom. Then that allows you to put three on top and then one on top of that to make a three-level pyramid, which is easy to do. But then you have these cards, and there's like, I don't know, like 50 or 60, 70 of these random cards that you flip up each time you play, and they give you rules you have to follow. Like if you have black spheres, they have to touch white spheres. If you have blue spheres, they cannot go above orange spheres. There can be no spheres on top of any white spheres. And so you lay out the six rules, and then you have a little timer. I think it's a two-minute timer, and everyone who's playing goes. You build your pyramid as quickly as you can until time runs out. Everyone starts with a number of points equal to the number of spheres they used, which is anywhere from 1 to 11, I think. And then you take two points away if you violated any of the rules. So you go through the rules one at a time. All right. Does anybody have white spheres not touching black? All right. If, if so, you lose two points. Uh, you're supposed to play through six rounds, and then you calculate your points, and then you see who won. Um, I played this with my boys, so that's one of the things I've been trying to do more is playing games with them, and I just like to get their feedback and kind of think it's fun. Uh, so we have these games, I'm reviewing them on an A to F, sort of, you know, very school-like, and uh, John Gabriel, who's 10, gave this game a B-, minus, uh, saying that he liked the puzzle aspect, he thought that was fun, and Jakey, who's 9, gave it an A-, minus, saying that he liked the competitive nature and how it would have a lot of variety because of all the random task cards that you draw each time. As for myself, I also gave it a B-. minus. I thought it was fun, especially playing with my boys. We got it kind of into it and the competitive nature. Like, you know, we'd push each other's over and stuff if they were doing better than us. That was fun. Uh, but I think the novelty would wear off pretty quick. Even with the random cards, I don't think this is a game I'm going to play more than like once or twice if I have a game night. And I would probably wouldn't play it more than five or six times before I think I've moved on to other things. So it was fun. I liked it, but I just don't see, I don't see it being something that's going to hit my table a lot. Yeah. Uh, so any questions for you on the game review, Tom? No, I've played this game. It's an abstract game. I'm actually, I've recently become more of a fan of abstract games. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel like it's so hard to play big, crunchy, thematic games. So, uh, uh, pulling out Dimension or doing like Blockus or some of these other kind of more abstract games is starting to appeal to me more. So it sounds, it sounds, I enjoyed it when I played it. So yeah, I did like, I gave it a B minus. That's not a bad score. I just, I'm concerned about how long I will want interested. to interested. And yeah, interested. Uh, but certainly want to thank Cosmos for sending the game to us. Uh, if anybody would like to buy a copy, you can use our link in the show notes to this episode. We do get a small, you know, bounty for sending you there through our Amazon link. Um, so with that out of the way, let's jump into, I think we're ready for the meat and potatoes of the show. Okay, perfect. All right. So like I said, we are, re we are talking, not reviewing. All right. We are, we are going back and looking at figment of our conversation. Dungeon talk episode seven. Uh, you and Evan sit down. The original goal of this episode was to talk about sandboxes. Okay. It was to talk about um, Michael's running a sandbox game and it wasn't working right. And so you guys were going to talk about it and you're going to talk about how to make a sandbox game. And for whatever reason, you guys started talking about wizards. Okay. Because it's the same thing. All right. And I think the reason that you guys started talking about this was because of the, the five E play test that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. All right. So you're diving in real deep. So, but you so see, you talk about this for a really long time and it got me thinking about wizards because 
I never play wizards, all right? Because I find them to be one note. But that's kind of what I want to dive into is, are, are wizards really that one note or is that just how I'm approaching them and how I'm thinking about them? So Michael, I, I know that you've, you've said this openly, but wizards, you like to play wizards, right? Yep, favorite class. Any game I play, if there's a wizard or a wizard analog, that's what I gravitate toward. Okay, so what makes a wizard fun for you? Why does this, why does this class appeal to you? Uh, so, and I've said this before on Twitter, kind of jokingly, but it's absolutely true. I enjoy solving simple problems with complex solutions. I think that's fun. And I think the wizard excels at that. Trying to find a way to use a magic spell, maybe not the way it was intended, or an outside-the-box application to cause something to happen, to solve a problem, to create an opportunity for something else. I love the creative problem-solving aspect of the wizard more so than any other class because of the way I, I particularly enjoy playing them. I don't go for damage-dealing spells. Like, I'm very rarely going to cast a fireball into a room of goblins. I'm much more likely to use, like, some sort of illusionary spell or, like, whispering something to try to, like, get them to fight each other or, to, you know, to, to cause them to run away, to cause them to think we are goblins ourselves and follow us you know whatever the case may be my dog is barking sorry um I, that just appeals to my nature of how i like to interact with role-playing games and i think the wizards give me the most opportunity to do that okay that makes sense for me though i think i i don't play them because of the exact reason um it's kind of a mentality shift from how you think about wizards so i don't like playing wizards because I don't when I'm playing Dungeon Dragons, to me the appeal of DD is the combat. Okay. And I know there's many ways to play DD and many reasons to it. But for me, when I'm playing DD, it everything is kind of central around the fights, all right, and the encounters. And yes, wizards have those big spells, but I like to be in the middle of the action. I feel like that's where I'm getting the most role play. I'm, I'm in there interacting with the bad guys. And as a wizard, I really can't do that because I feel like I'm going to die all the time. Mm. So, but I think this is me not really understanding the flexibility of the wizard. All right. I think it's really just... I, I, I like magic, though, I, but I usually am playing warlocks because I feel like I'm able to do that but still be really powerful, okay? So, but, so I, the reason I feel like I want to talk about that is, is, so I think it's important to understand how wizards work in 5th edition, okay? So, wizards, they're, they're just kind of, we're going to go deep on this, all right? So, obviously, they're... They have a 1d6, that's their hit die. All right, so you're you're not you're not very powerful. You typically can't use most of the armor, all right? If you can use armor, it's magical armor, and then you're boosting, you're waste, I say wasting, maybe you're not wasting, but you're burning a spell slot, one of the all-powerful spell slots. And so the way that wizards work is that you have, based on your current character level, you have access to different levels of spells. Right as you progress and level up, you get more spell slots. All right, for these different levels, you have different spells that you can kind of think of the spells filling up these slots. It's kind of like ammunition, and every day you have so much ammunition, and every time you use a spell, 
uh, you basically use up one of your spell slots. It's gone. So the so basically you're you're using up as every time you use a spell, you use up one of your one of your pieces of ammunition, and it's gone until mm-hmm. you rest up. So that's why it's it's a real it's a re, comes down to a resource management sort of yeah. sort of class. So, but for me though, because I I'm like, oh, these spell slots, they're such a valuable asset, all right? I don't want to waste I say waste again in in quotation marks because this is me just my mentality here. I don't want to cast grace, all right, when I want to just all right, I'm just going to cast my bolt of frost or thunderclap or fireball and do as much damage as possible because for me to the goal is to get that combat over so we can get to the next thing. So, Michael, why am I wrong thinking this way? Well, again, I don't think you're you're wrong going back to our motto of having fun, you're doing it right. If that's the way you enjoy playing wizards, though it sounds like you don't actually enjoy that, but if you did, then that's fine. Uh, I, I actually think the way I approach it is probably... The minority, I would yeah. think. I think a lot of people who play wizards play them because they get the very powerful spells and they can do very big things, but that just doesn't fit my personality. So, like uh, the the game that we're playing on the Cthulhu uh, channel, we're streaming every other week. I play a wizard in that game, and in a recent um, encounter, we were on. This is an Eberron game, so we were on the lightning rail, which is like a train. And we're about to be boarded by bandits, you know, very classic train. So there's a bunch of these, uh, I think they were orcs or hobgoblins. They were riding like wargs and they were charging down like over this hill towards the train. And they were just like, you know, and basically they were acting like a swarm in the game. So they were just like all of them. So I just cast grease, took out like eight of them because, you know, they're charging full tilt down this slope towards the train and all of a sudden their mounts lose footing so they get disadvantage on their rolls once the first one fails then they just sort of like roll into each other you know and i know there was some hand wavy loosey-goosey stuff with the dm side but that's exactly how i think it should have been handled like i did so much more to affect that swarm with one grease spell than a magic missile would have or you know maybe even equivalently of a fireball and to me, that was fun. It's like, hey, I can use grease here and get the effect of a fireball type of thing because I'm going to take out a whole bunch of them at once. Um, you know, I know uh, press the digitation. There's been times where, like, maybe in the middle of like a tense sort of NPC standoff, dramatic, emotional scene, you use press the digitation and tie somebody's shoes laces together. And so when they turn and you know they think they've just dropped this, you know. Uh, powerful verbal retort and they turn and fall flat on their face and everyone laughs at them you basically sort of swayed the crowd in your direction by using a cantrip and so to me it's like how much of effect can i get for the little the least amount of resource is sort of how i view that and that's where i find my fun with the game i guess for me it's it kind of comes down to an unknown because when you decide to be creative with that spell um, and the nature of Dungeons & Dragons is you do something, all right, and there's not necessarily a whole lot of rules for a lot of the different creative things that you may do or how you may use a spell, all right? So at... Right, if you have a very by-the-book DM, then I probably wouldn't yeah. like to play wizards in those types of spells because they're going to say, well, a grease only affects one creature or... 
you know, like it doesn't matter if someone falls on their face in a con- in this situation or, or whatever the case may be. Like if, if they are not sort of like, and again, I'm not trying to get more mm-hmm. than what I should. I'm just trying to get the most out of each spell that I can. So I don't want someone to say you cast Grease and then you win the battle, but I do want to be able to cast Grease and have an impact on the battle. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, so basically... I think it may just be me being a control freak in the sense that when mm. I'm playing a wizard, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to put it in the DM's hands. All right. Uh, even though it may be a great DM, I don't want to like give them the caveat to kind of say what happens. Um, mm-hmm. I want to basically, it's very, it's very static. It's very binary. I cast my fireball. And I, it goes back to how I'm creating my characters. I'm creating my characters so that I have, they're maximized full control. I leave nothing up to imagination. I know what they're going to do and they're going to do it well. And so that's why I kind of feel like I I gravitate towards warlocks because I kind of understand them more. So, but the, so I think that's really, uh, there's, there's a lot because the spells, I mean, it's like, it's gotta be like 30% of the PHB is, is spells. Like there is, Probably. And I guess that may be the other thing why it's kind of there's that whole analysis paralysis. There's so much stuff that you can do with wizards. So the other aspect of wizards that we haven't even talked about is the whole idea of schools. So obviously I'm picking just evocation. This is the destruction magic school. I find it fits for me well. But um, there's other schools. All right. So you've got stuff like illusion or aberration. Uh, you've got enchantment. Um necromancy all these things so michael do you pl- have a particular school of magic that you like to play so like uh, in in theory i think the conjuration is a really fun school this is where you summon things to help fight you in battles so you summon minions and pets but in practical application in fifth edition i find divination to be the most okay interesting uh, useful because that's the one where at the beginning of each day, quote unquote day, you get to roll two D20s and you record those results. And then at any time ah. for the rest of that day, you can either substitute one of those results for one of your own rolls or someone else's. So if you have a couple tens, you can be like, yeah, that, that person about to shoot me. They now got a 10. Uh, whatever you roll doesn't matter. They got a 10. Or if you roll really high or really low, like I can say, hey, my, my buddy over here, they now get this nat 20 on their attack roll. Or the bad guy gets the nat 1 on their attack roll. I, I'll do my best to edit this out so maybe no one hears it's this. It's a dog. If you hear any it's dog, dog. my apologies. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think those, again, those are like aces up the sleeve. Now, sometimes you roll, you get like 14s and 15s. You know, maybe you use them for yourself and they still don't hit, or maybe you give them to the bad guys and they still hit. So there is still a risk reward, and there's there's the strategy behind when you use these or not. And I have found that to be a lot of fun. So that's what my my character in that Eberron game we're playing is divination. Even though none of my spells really fall into the divination school, I don't really like the divination spells all that much. I think that particular school or class power is very effective and very fun in the game. Okay, so let me ask you this then. Thinking about you talking about how you're kind of using the divination for its power, but you don't really like the spells a whole lot. Maybe my problem then is that maybe it's just that wizards in 5th edition don't work for me because I do find wizards in a game like uh, 
Forbidden Lands I really like because it's similar that you're using up your willpower. So you, it's still kind of like you have these this this resource that you're using, but you gain it all the time. So you can always, in Forbidden Lands, you're always, you can do riskier things to get more willpower. So it never feels like you're, it's kind of high risk, high reward kind of aspect. Whereas a wizard in fifth edition, it's kind of like, it's more of a very closely managed system. So I want to ask you then is let's talk about some different systems. Okay. Cause I've only ever played fifth edition. All right. You've played a lot more editions of Dungeons and Dragons. I know when fifth edition first came out, everybody was losing their minds that spell slots were back. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the, uh, how some of the other editions handled wizards and is fifth edition your favorite, least favorite, where does it kind of fall in there? Right. Um, I will do my best. Again, I've never been a very rules-heavy DM or player, and I've DM'd a lot more than i played, so I actually haven't played that many Wizards. Um, so but I will do what I can. So in, in its very earliest form, um, Gary Gygax was a big fan of these, I think, Jack Vance novels, Dying Earth, I think. And so the, the way magic works in D&D is based heavily off of those books, and that's where the the name Vancean or Vancean magic comes in. That's that's basically sort of the the methodology that they've used. So in earlier versions of D anD D, wizards would have a number of spell slots, and they would have to populate those slots with specific spells during their preparation. Which in the game is usually in the morning. They get up and they read their spell book and they do their calisthenics, whatever. So let's say you have three first level spell slots. And you want to cast Magic Missile. So you say Magic Missile takes up one of those slots. You have two slots left. You want to cast Sleep. So you write down Sleep. That's now two of your spell slots. And then Mage Armor. That's it. So those you get three spells over the course of the day. And they can only be Sleep once, Mage Armor once, Magic Missile once. And that's it. And so part of the fun of that then is trying to figure out, well, what spells do I think will be useful today? Uh, you know, some of them you probably have your go-tos. You always have magic missile. You maybe always take sleep. You may always take uh, mage armor. And then once you get more spell slots, you you sort of mix and uh, mix and match some variety based on for what you're what you've been facing. If you're in like you're going into a tomb and you know you're going to fight zombies, then maybe you do something more fire spell. If you're going against a vampire, maybe you do something that gives you a light, uh, you know, or some other you know, depending on your level, that kind of thing. Uh, so it, it was very much called the fire it and forget it sort of method. So once you cast magic missile, it's gone. You cannot cast magic missile again. And for the most part, that's the way it's worked all the way up through fourth edition. In fourth edition, you had daily spells, you had con- counter spells, you had like uh, cantrips that you could cast every time. So it, it, it changed it pretty substantially from what I can remember. Fifth edition goes back to spell slots, but they change it up a little bit where you have two lists. You have your spell slots and then you have your spells per day. Or no, you have your spells up, your daily spells. I'm probably explaining this poorly, but what that means is I may have three first level spells, slots that I can cast. And then I choose which first level spells I want for the day. But then I can mix and match those two lists however mm-hmm. I want. So if I take Mage Armor and I have three spell slots, I could cast Mage Armor three times. Yeah. I don't have to cast it one for one. So I could take, okay, Grease, Magic Missile, Sleep, 
and then I have three spells, I may end up casting Mage Armor, or excuse me, Magic Missile three times, or Sleep twice and Magic Missile once. And I find that to be a great system. I really like the way it works here because it's still a little bit restrictive in that you have to pick the spells you want that day, but you have a lot more um, variety in how you can apply those spells given the circumstances of the game that that you find yourself in. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't. It sounds like you don't know a whole lot about the fourth edition stuff then. I, because I didn't play it that much. I mean, I, I played it some. I, I ran it some. But again, so I know that you had these like spells that were like. Uh, you could cast them whenever you want. I can't remember the name of it right now, but they're kind of like the way cantrips work now. You could cast them as many times as you wanted whenever you needed to. They never ran out. But they weren't called cantrips. I think they were called something else. Um, and then you had your daily spells that you could only cast once per day, and you had encounter spells that you could only cast once per encounter. But the thing about that is that's how everybody's powers worked. Yeah. Like, spells weren't unique in that, that regard. The fighter had fighter abilities that they could do every time or they could do once per encounter or they could do once per day and they they also built upon power so everybody's powers worked exactly the same way whether they were called spells or not interesting yeah yeah i yeah i definitely wouldn't have liked the very the first editions of D D. um that doesn't sound like my cup of tea so i i don't know it yeah, it was so hard. I mean, and that was the thing about I think back then is if you had a wizard that you could keep alive, then eventually they became super powerful. And that that was you know, again I'm sure we talked about it in that episode that you know the quantum uh, leveling thing is that you know as they go up in levels they become so much more powerful that at some point they don't even need anybody else in the party. But it's so hard to get someone there that that was almost like a meta game within the game is everyone's like, okay, protect the wizard, protect the wizard. Cause if we can keep them alive, once they get to like level five, they'll just take care of everything for us. And then, you know, we'll just hang on their coattails. Yeah. You, you did talk about that. The whole idea of like getting to level 20 or whatever, but then now you guys, you, you, you guys were saying that you never ever get past level four. So. Right. Yeah. I never, I've almost never got high. I think seventh level once and 12th level. That's once. funny. And yeah, we're, we're dealing with right now. We just hit level 12 in ghost of salt marsh. So, um, the Alex who's playing a sorcerer, not a wizard, but he now has some really powerful spells and he is last night. He used one. Basically he turned an entire room into a storm and I had all of these. Sahu again, I was like, guys, I'm so excited. We're doing a dungeon crawl. You guys have been beating me so much. Cause we do. I mean, we've got a healthy rivalry in our game. That's just, it, it's how, it's how we do it. We have fun with it that way. And so there's this whole aspect of me. I was like, all right, guys, I'm going to get you this time. And then Alex just whips out this spell and just turns the whole room into a storm and just kills every person in this room. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a cool spell. So yeah, I'm excited to see once he gets to level 20. Uh, Cause I have the only time I have ran a, another level one to 20 game before that was my first D and D campaign. And my brother got to level, uh, he got to level 20 and it was, he, he final battle. He's level 20. He uses a wish spell. He turned, basically turns himself into Behumet to fight Tiamat. It was, it was wild. So, um, anyway, mm. that's what you get. Big stuff. Okay. So yeah, wizards, I don't know. It's not my cup of tea. I'd be curious uh, if 
anybody who's listening who's on our Discord, let us know if you've played a wizard that's not combat-focused. So, like, if you took an enchantment school and you just enchanted stuff, or if you took, like, a school of illusion uh, for a more uh, subterfuge and manipulation and political sort of game, I'm interested to hear people's experiences with that. So, um, yeah. the So, you guys did get to... Uh, the final topic very briefly. All right. And this was more or less just for uh, both of you. It was an interesting conversation because I feel like both of you were venting to each other. Okay. So maybe you can give us some, some background here. Uh, Michael, uh, you were running a sandbox game at the time. Do you remember this at all? So I think that this was the game before Made Men. Okay. Because I remember we ended up stopping that game and started playing Made Men full time because people liked that game so much better. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about that as we get into things. Uh, but so I think I know the game that we were probably playing at the time. And um, I, I don't think we played it all that long. So I don't really know if there was a whole lot of specific. You didn't. But, uh, the con- some more context though here for, for you was that you were frustrated because you didn't feel like there was any like forward momentum of any sort of plot or anything like everybody was just kind of floundering a little bit. And Evan was frustrated because he didn't know what to do. Like the whole idea of like, Mm. Oh, I just, I didn't understand where the story was going. So he was kind of saying, I don't know where the story is going. And you were saying, Oh, I don't know how to get you guys there. We're doing a sandbox. So I think that's one of the inherent beauties of a sandbox. So. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that's interesting. I know that, that dog's driving me crazy. Uh, that's one of the things that I have certainly tried to do differently. And I've taken the lessons from that campaign and, you know, some of the lessons we talked about in that episode, I'm sure that even when I play a sandbox game, I try to have a little bit more direction. Okay. It's just that the direction, it's not necessarily that you can do anything. It's that you can do this any way that you want if that makes a little bit more sense and like right now shadow spawns i think is is it's kind of a weird mixture between sandboxy and and a railroady game because there's definitely a plot there's definitely something that they are trying to do but it's not always going like step a to step b um so I have a couple of thoughts on this. So one talking about Shadow Spawn specifically. So one of the characters, again, I'm going to try to give as much context as quick as I can. They they ran into an NPC. The NPC was on the effects of a curse. The curse was wasting them away. Their body was literally being like sucked away, like sands through an hourglass. There was this magical curse. And after just spending a few days with this NPC, the NPC dies. And the only thing left behind is what appears to be a small obsidian husk that's basically was like a heart. It was shaped like an actual, not a Valentine's heart, but an actual heart. And it had these little red flecks in it, and it was sort of beating with his interior light. So like as it would, you know, the the light would glow and grow and fluctuate just like a heartbeat would. And it was, uh, we found out there was a connection between this NPC and one of our PCs. Our PC doesn't remember it because they're under a curse that their memory is faulty and they didn't remember this person. But there was all these clues that made it pretty clear that they used to know each other and maybe were even romantically linked in the past. And so this PC was gifted 
this heart and it was in a box. Like six sessions later, they finally touched the damn thing. Like I, I thought it was pretty yeah. clear hey, that you know they, they needed to touch it. And so they didn't. And, and it almost got to a part where I feel like they were not touching it on purpose just to like mess with me. They finally did. And when they did, this thing happened, which very clearly said, okay, here's where you need to go now. But for, I think it was literally like four sessions, they weren't touching it. So I had to keep sort of making up things for them to do because I didn't want to just force them to touch it. And so that was like the sandboxy thing is like, I'm like, okay, well, you can go here and you can do this and you can go here and you do this. But when they finally touch the thing, then like this door opens like, okay, here's the adventure you're supposed to go on now. So please go down that yeah. door. And I think probably the biggest lesson that I took from the conversation that I my memory of this conversation with Evan is that what I would do before is I would lay out a question. And then before that question was answered, I would give them another question. And then before either of those two questions were answered, I would give them another question. And in my mind, I kept, it was like this cool, twisty mystery game. But for them, it felt like they were never making any progress because they never actually answered anything before the next question came along. So I have tried to do a better job of letting them answer a question before I ask it. Maybe they, maybe there's two questions built up, maybe even a third but we're not going to keep getting questions all the way down. Eventually, we're going to get answers to questions and answers to questions, and things might circle back, and maybe an answer wasn't a full answer. But it, there's a there's a lot more sense of purpose and direction in the games that I'm running now because of the, that game, in my mind, was a failure. I don't yeah. I, to the point that we stopped playing it. <laughs> yeah. But funnily enough, the game we started playing was a game that I made MP or I made the characters for them, put them in the middle of a story. And to this day, I still think that was probably one of the most successful games I've ever ran, even though it does a lot of things that I think I'll, I would normally say don't do, like create characters for the players. But they all loved the characters I created for them, and they loved the story they were in. It gave them a lot of momentum because they were just already involved in things. They weren't trying to find out, well, how does my character fit into this? You know, we walk into a village, and all these things are happening. How do we interact? Like, where do we fit? You don't have that in this. It's more like a novel. It's like, here, you're the main characters of a story. Go. Yeah. And it worked beautifully. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I still don't know that I'm great at running sandbox games because I think I'm better at running games that have a have a linear plot, but making you feel like maybe you're not on a railroad. Yeah. If, I think that might be the secret to my Yeah, favorite. no, no, I get that totally. And I think one of the things we should have done was kind of define a sandbox for anybody who doesn't know is it's an, it's a, it's a, role-playing campaign where there isn't necessarily a linear plot or a main thing for the players to do. The whole point is, right. as a DM, it's a little bit tricky. What you're trying to do is you're trying to populate the world with a lot of stuff that is happening at the same time, and the players then get to choose and find what they want to do, and they may miss out on certain things because they're going and doing Another thing, and the beauty of a sandbox for me is that as the dungeon master, I'm learning and exploring the world with my players. So with that said, I've done it both ways. My first campaign was very much a linear game. All right. We ran the uh, the Horde of the Dragon Queen, that whole, that first D&D campaign. And that is on the rails. And it was great for us because we were new players. We didn't understand things. All right. That worked great. But then after that, we, my group, we switched 
over to Sandbox and really haven't looked back. And when I say the Sandbox games that I run is the first one I ever ran was Curse of Strahd. Curse of Strahd is a great sandbox game. You're like, well, isn't it Curse of Strahd? You got a main villain and a main plot? Yes, but the beauty about Curse of Strahd is there's this main plot happening and it's continuing to happen. Whether It doesn't matter what you're doing, but you're in Barovia and it's surrounded by mist. And the whole thing is the players can go anywhere in Barovia and you really kind of, you kind of telegraph to your players. This is you have to do things. It doesn't matter what you do. You're just going out and you're finding stuff. That's a great sandbox. Then we switched over to when we started running Faith, which was crazy. I said, guys, we're going to make a whole universe. And so we made planets together and it was a big world building exercise. We didn't know what was going to happen. And that was sandbox like 100%. I just let my players go wherever they wanted. And then the other type of sandbox game, which is kind of what our Ghost of Saltmarsh game is, and maybe kind of what you're more familiar with, Michael, is what we do there is we have certain sections of the campaign that are sandbox. So the town of Saltmarsh. It is a big town. The players can do whatever they want when they're in that town. Whenever they're in Saltmarsh, I have no plot. They are just there discovering things. And then like last night, we basically, <laughs> they were in Saltmarsh, and then I just dumped them in front of a dungeon. I was like, there's no traveling. I'm like, you guys are going to this dungeon tonight. Boom, there you are. Now go inside. It's very much on the rails. And then once they are in, I'm not guiding them through the dungeon. It's kind of up to them to figure out where they want to go. So it's kind of sandboxy in certain areas. But once they start, once they get to a plot point, then it's very linear. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I want to say here, and I'm surprised it didn't come up earlier. Everyone grab your glasses is I'm pretty sure that when I ran that game for, for them, then this was before my love affair with session zeros yes. had come about. So I didn't really know what their characters wanted yep. to do. I didn't, I didn't have a clear sense of what their motivation was. I don't, I didn't really, wasn't really sure how they were connected to each other. And that's definitely something that would have happened now. So if I was going to try to do a, a truly sandbox game, I would use that session zero to be like, okay, well, what are your character's goals? Like, what are your motivations yourselves? And then I would use that because it would still be sandboxy, but I'd build the world around that. You know, if someone had a, a spurned, uh, you know, lover that is now their rival, then I would have put that in there. If they were like looking for someone, then there would be clues every now and then to keep moving them forward into finding that person. But I think they all made their characters. We all came to the table, and I just tried to make up a world that made sense yeah. to me in my mind of like, you know, fantasy world, and it just didn't connect very well. So I think that's a big key that I would do differently now for true sandboxes. I would have that session zero before I, you know, got into the first session. I would be like, okay, well, these are the characters. This is what I think they want to do based on these characters. So then let's sprinkle in things. So then that would motivate them. It's still an open world, but. Again, I, you know, I'm trying to find the most powerful sword. Okay, great. That's still a motivation that I can use to put in this. Well, there's a legend that there's a powerful sword in this town. Let's go there and look for it. That's at least enough to give you something to do. And then we might make up a bunch of crap in the, in the middle. But I, I just think we were all listless. I didn't know what they wanted. They didn't know what they wanted. I didn't know how to give them anything. That They didn't know how to ask for what they wanted. It was just not good. Yeah, I have a note in here. Definitely, yeah. So session zeros, I mean, they're important for a lot of things. Uh, didn't sound like you all had one. 
the uh, they are so important for sandbox because, like you said, you can't run a successful sandbox unless you know what the player's motivation is. Because you, as the dungeon master, you have to populate the sandbox, and if you're populating the sandbox with all dragons and none of the characters care about dragons, it's like it's just it's not going to work. They're going to be like, oh, another dragon is attacking the town. That's, we don't even care. So it's, yeah, finding right. out what they want is key. Uh, I have a, I just, I absolutely love sandboxes so much. And I wanted to ask you about, I, I wanted to talk about like what the mentality it takes to like, who loves sandboxes? Who, who doesn't it work for? For me, I think it works really well. Obviously, I have really, uh, I have players who like sandboxes too. They they're all they're they're dungeon masters. They like the idea that they have some ability to create the world with me. But I really like it because as I've started playing games in my house, I have got to become so lazy. All right, and so for my which is that's I like it that way. I'm not worried about trying to create this very detailed plot anymore. All right, which don't get me wrong, we had. That first game of that first campaign of Dungeons and Dragons was incredible. We had the most intricate plot. It was so epic. I I mean, this is how all dungeon masters are, but I was like, this could be a movie, guys. This is so good. And then, but I realized that was so much work to do. And it worked so well, but it was a ton of work. Now, right. the what I enjoy so much about my home games is all of my players show up. Uh we all hang out. We just have we 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 have a few drinks and we're all just like, oh hey, well, we want to go check out this mountain today. And they're like, Tom, what's in that mountain? I'm like, I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> so it's a it's a different mentality. It's more of, I don't know, it's a more relaxed, not really caring about the plot as much. So for you, Michael. Well, I think there's like there's a couple like X, Y axes here, then, you know, you could like quadrant it out. Cause I think you could play a sandbox game. That's very much like what you're talking about, where it's all kind of loosey goosey and everyone knows they're coming to the table and they're all going to be able to create things and places and people and, and, and plot hooks. And, you know, it's very collaborative, but I think you could also play a sandbox that is still very much DM driven with they're creating the world. They're creating pretty much everything, but they're just doing it kind of in front of their players as they go. And I think both can be fun depending on the BM, depending on the players. The The biggest thing that I would say, and again, I, I, I love Evan dearly. I, I know he doesn't listen to the show. At least I don't, I don't think he does. I've tried to reach out to him. I can't find him anymore. I don't have his email. But I think looking back, I was at fault for a lot of that. But I think they were too. I, yeah. I think it was just mistakes all the way around. I think they were being kind of selfish uh, from a player standpoint in wanting me to provide them exactly what they yeah. wanted when they weren't communicating to me what it was they wanted. And I would compare that to like, again, Shadow Spawns, where I, you know, we have conversations between me and the players of, hey, I think tonight's going to be a big fight night. So just come ready. You know, we're going to get into the combat. Just know that, you know, I kind of want this combat to last like half the session so really luxuriate in the combat, you know, like I kind of give them like a little bit of guidance, but I don't know if they're going to win the fight or not. Like I have no idea how things are going to go. So it's still freedom for them to do things. And other sessions I might be like, 
I think tonight's going to be heavy role play. So, you know, really give me some directions of where you want to go and I'll, I'll work with it. And I think that the players I have now have a different mindset than those players did then, that they're willing to live in the sandbox, but they're also willing to go inside of a room and stay inside that room for as long as they feel like I need them to as a DM, if that makes sense. Like it's, it's collaborative in the, if they think that this is what I want them to do, they're going to do it. Yeah. They're still in a sandbox, but for this session, that sandbox might just be this little corner because that's what I have prepared yeah. for tonight where I think Evan and them were almost intentionally trying to be like, well, I'm going to go over here because I want to be in a sandbox. And if I go where Michael wants me to, that's not really yeah. a sandbox. And it's like, it was very antagonistic in a way that wasn't good for No, anybody. I definitely, because I'm gonna just going to call it right here. I think you're the type of dungeon master who really does like a detailed plot, all right? Um, you like to see that. You like to see the the mechanisms and the story advancing, all right? Um, and I, yeah, you got to, if you don't have players who agree with that, uh, and they're just kind of, oh, we're just going to go do this random thing over here. Uh, yeah, it just, it doesn't jive well. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, sandboxes, they're, they're not for everybody. I think everybody kind of dreams of running a great sandbox game, but honestly, they are a very... They're not for everybody. I'll just say it right. I mean, they're they're just not. They work for me. I love them. But like I said, I also I'm not. A, I I've kind of shifted a lot. I'm, I'm not really that much into big old plots anymore. So I'm I'm big into yeah. random tables. I, and again, I think it can ebb yeah. and flow. Like you could play a session that's sandboxy yeah. and and it takes the the game in a direction you did not anticipate. But then you're like, okay, well, based on this new direction the next session is going to be kind of railroady in that now that you've, you, you know, we've gotten here together, I'm now going to describe, or I'm now going to define what here is, yeah. you know, that type of a thing. I think you can go back and forth. And, you know, again, I, I think railroads get a very bad name. I don't think they're near, I think they can be bad. I think DMs do them poorly, but just like a roller coaster, a roller coaster is literally on rails and i love roller coasters they're a ton of fun like i love getting on them the ups and the downs and the twirls and loops but at no point do i want to like get out of the roller coaster halfway yeah. through so i think the, sometimes as a player you got to be like you know what i trust the dungeon master that if i get in this cart we're going to have yeah. a ton of fun over this next session it's going to be a rail railroady but it doesn't matter i'm still going to have fun and we're going to get to the end of it and then maybe after that we wander the park for a couple days and i don't you know and it's sandboxy but eventually we're going to get back on another roller coaster and i i think that's a good way to run a game actually i think that's how i would almost describe shadow spawns is that we're in a, in a big amusement park and it's not all thought out it's not all defined and they sometimes go to places like oh i guess this is where the you know the the games are and oh i guess this is where the shops are oh but now we're getting on a roller coaster tonight Tonight we're on a roller coaster and we're going to go through this. We're going to go through my plot. We're going to get to the end of it. And there's going to be a big reveal. But then next session, it might be back in the yeah. party. I think uh, to close this off, if you want to get kind of a, a good sandboxy D&D game that kind of jumps between those kind of heavy sandbox, kind of some railroady stuff, um, some plot stuff. Like I said, obviously I'm a big proponent of Curse of Strahd. But then also I think a book that gets a, our review was okay for it, but it gets a bad rap um, sometimes is the Icewind Dale book. I've been running that, um, Rhyme of the Frostmaid, I've been running that for my daughters. And yeah, there's there's some problems with it, but it's a really good sandbox, like in the sense that 
it's uh it's well-defined area lots of cool stuff to do so yeah i think if you want to do a sandbox with D, don't want to plan a bunch of stuff yeah rhyme of the frost maiden and then curse of strahd both great and then if you want to do like true full-on sandbox obviously check out you know rpg academy favorite forbidden lands so i was i was gonna bring that up if you didn't because that's that's what that game does it's like you can go anywhere you want but when you find something then you're kind of going to deal yeah. with it and so it goes from sandboxy to railroad yeah, sandboxy to the, railroad. but that's just very session zero if you're playing forbidden lands everybody just kind of accepts this is a sandbox so yeah I th- I think I want to I'm going to stick my hat or hang my hat on this um, amusement park analogy. Okay. I think that's going to be my go-to. Is that you're in this giant amusement park, and it's not well defined, and you can go anywhere in the amusement park okay. you want. But eventually, you're probably going to find yourself on a roller coaster, and then we're going to be on the rails for a little while. But then you're going to get off that, and then you go back to the amusement park. I think that's a good analogy for how I run most of my games. That they are open world and collaborative, but there are elements within it that if you'll just if you'll get in line and you'll get on this ride, we're all going to have fun and we're going to advance the plot. And then I'll let you go back and play in the sandbox. Actually, you know what? That is a really good, that's a really good analogy. Like that's so good. I mean, I feel like that's like any worthy, you know, but that's neither, it's neither here nor there. Maybe we'll submit next year. All right. So anyway, uh, folks, yeah, that's kind of all we had. Um, You guys talked about a bunch of other random topics that I'm not even going to go into. So, um, yeah. Uh, Again, and I'll just, preface it again i love evan this this show would not exist without him but he has a very different vibe than i did and certainly i do now and i was all on board at the time but going back and listening to some of the old episodes like there's some stuff that i kind of think is like cringy like broy um and um there's actually there's one one segment I went back and edited it out like two or three years ago from one of our early episodes that I was not comfortable with at the time. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we, uh, we need to get rid of that. And I'm pretty sure it's, you're probably like a year away. It's a, it's a ways away, but there's an episode. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Evan's still around, but maybe it's not, but maybe it's not long after you left where we got like a listener had emailed the show talking about listening to the show with their youngest daughter. And it was an eye-opening moment for me. And I'm like, I just, I'm thinking of some of the things that we had said. And I'm like, but this dude, you know, he's like in his 40s and he's listed as a dot. And it, I was like, okay, I think that was one of the big turning points for trying to make it. Like, I don't want to like sanitize it completely because, you know, my personality is a little bit, you know, adult humor. But also have an understanding that there might be different people listening to this than just my circle of friends and and that was a big moment so i'm interested when you get to that like maybe you can track how the changes. show changes a uh, little bit i'm sure it changes a lot with uh, it's so funny I, i'm loving going through these old episodes i ran i will message michael when there's just like the strangest joke i'll be like this is hilarious michael so dated oh it's so good all right so anyway uh yeah so this has been another recap episode so that's it yeah, good times. So once again, thank you, Tom, for doing all the legwork and doing this. I'm really, uh, I'm really enjoying revisiting these topics with uh, with fresh eyes, and I hope people listening are as well. Uh, certainly, once again, thank you to Foxblade for doing our uh, grant for doing our DM spotlight. Thank you to Cosmos for sending us that game to review. It was a, I really appreciate that. Uh, but if people want to again connect with you, last time social media, where can they find you? Where can they go? Yeah, that's at BezcarTom on Twitter. All right, you can find me at the RPG Academy. If you want to join our Discord, just hit me up on Twitter, on Facebook, send me an email. 
and just say, hey, I'd like to join. I'll send you the link. Jump in. Mostly we talk about food, animals, and Marvel shows right now. Or not just Marvel, but like TV in general. There's a whole lot of uh, like TV stuff, projects people are talking about. Excited. The new Matrix stuff's hit. Um, the new um, Cowboy Bebop live action. People are all so excited, excited about that. But it's just a bunch of nerds talking about stuff we love. I mean, so if you do like this show, you probably would like the Discord. Sure. So please consider joining there. Before we go, we have to say our, our catchphrase. If you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy. Or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.